My guest Ryan Boyd works on Neo4j, an open source graph database. Ryan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. What is Neo4j? Uh, Neo4j is a graph database. Uh, it's basically allowing you to store your data and query your data um, in the form of a graph. So you have nodes and edges, um, and it's just a much more natural and intuitive way to store and query your data. What problem does Neo4j solve? Neo4j uh, solves a couple problems. Uh, I'd say you know, I group these into two primary categories. One is it solves the problem of uh, queries getting a lot more complex of your data. So, uh, you know, a lot of people refer to a database, they mean a relational database. They mean a database that stores their data in columns and rows. Um, and this isn't really just a, a natural way to store your data. You think about the world more in the form of objects and the relationships between those objects rather than in columns and rows. Um, so, you know, we sought out to um, make a more intuitive model for storing and querying your data. Um, and we also, you know, uh, we also sought to find a way to make it a lot more performant to query uh, some types of, of data. So, um, you know, for a lot of the common use cases for Neo4j, such as fraud detection or recommendations uh, or logistics and routing, those types of use cases are not very performant to, to uh, run in a relational database. Um, and because of the way that we store and query your data, uh, it's much more performant to do it in Neo4j. So we're, we're really sort of an antibiotic for some use cases that enable those use cases to be solved in real time instead of batch processes as they're solved today. We'll get into the implementation of those use cases, but... Still from a high level, you have said that the whiteboard model is the physical model. What does that phrase mean? Sure. So, I mean, basically what this means is that we're eliminating a layer of translation between the business folks and the developers who are writing the code. Uh, when you go up and you think about a business problem that you have, you're not putting on a whiteboard columns and rows and then you know, mapping tables between two separate other tables. That's not how you're thinking about it uh, as a business person. You're thinking about it really as the objects in, in your business, whether they be people or customers or whether they be uh, banks or entities. Like You're thinking about those in terms of objects and you're thinking about how those objects relate to other objects. And you're writing that up on the whiteboard as that, as if you're designing your, your data, you know, typically you're writing it as, hey, we have this, this customer and this customer orders this product and this product is supplied by this supplier. Um, and you're thinking about it in those terms. And we really wanted to eliminate that translation between you know, what you're writing up on the whiteboard and what the developers are implementing. So uh, it basically becomes the whiteboard model is uh, kind of the code model, and then it becomes the physical model because that's how we store the, the data on disk as well. Um, we, we basically store the data on disk as those nodes and the relationships uh, and then use what's called index-free adjacency to allow you to navigate from one relationship to another relationship, essentially with pointer arithmetic on disk or in memory, which allows us to get that performance benefit. So to clarify, you are saying that Neo4j is not a graph API to a relational database. 
Correct. Neo4j is a native graph database. Uh, we've implemented the storage model from ground up uh, to allow us to have you know, both ACID compliance as well as high-performance queries on uh, connected data. Talk more about that storage model. What is being stored in memory and what is in disk? Sure. So, it, you know, basically the... Um, your entire model, you know, is stored on disk. You know, we, we aim to have durability uh, and we do achieve durability uh, of your data. So when you commit a transaction, it's on disk. Uh, so everything is stored on disk, but then we do provide uh, caching mechanisms such that the data that is frequently accessed uh, is also available in memory. And that just provides a, an additional level of performance. You know, disk performance keeps on improving nowadays. Uh, yeah, SSDs have made it a lot faster to access data on disk, and there's even newer technology that's being worked on by some major players in the industry that makes it even much faster than that. But still, memory is is kind of the nirvana. We really want the, to be able to access the data from memory. So we do provide caching, um, and uh, a lot of our customers end up caching most, if not all, of their data in memory because uh, you know memory has gotten a lot cheaper uh, as well. Uh, but then you know the, we aim to be, and we are, a, you know, online transaction processing, you know, with ACID compliance. So we do have to write the data to a permanent storage mechanism on disk. Let's use the example of a social network to motivate our discussion because social networks aren't going anywhere. Facebook is a really good example for a type of application that people frequently want to develop. If I were building a Facebook application and I wanted to have Neo4j as my database, what is represented in nodes and what is represented in edges? Sure, you can think of it uh, as the natural language that you use to speak about these things. So the nouns are going to be represented as nodes and the verbs are going to be represented uh, as edges. So uh, in the in the Facebook model, we have uh, let's just simplify it, and we have people, and then we have uh, companies. We'll say for pages, and then we have groups. Um, and so, a group would be a type of uh, a node. A person would be a type of a node. Uh, we call them labels. Uh, labels are the types. Uh, and then we have uh, the the companies would be a type of a node. And then the relationship, we would say uh, a person is friends with, maybe, as a relationship. So John is friends with Kate, uh, where friends with is the relationship. Um, that, that relates individual people. And then you might have, uh, you know, person is subscribed to a, a group. Uh, and the person is following a company. Uh, we're following and subscribed to are the, are the edges. Is there a notion of multiple tables to this database, or is it more just like one giant database uh, or one giant table with all the different types connected? You can have multiple disconnected graphs uh, in Neo4j, and so we have customers that do store in a Neo4j different types of data that are disconnected from each other. Um, but, you know, that's actually one of the less common use cases because people really use us sort of as their master data management. They try to bring all of their data together and figure out how that data is related and connected to each other. Uh, so usually the, the graphs are much more connected. We don't have the, the concept of, of tables per se um, or, you know, namespaces of this data. Um, Basically, you can you can store and query it uh, as these disconnected graphs. 
some people do go about and, and do create and run multiple instances of Neo4j to have entirely different data sets. Um, and you can do that even on the same machine, just running as different ports. Um, but yeah, that's probably a, a more rare use case. So you've outlined a way that people could represent a social network within Neo4j. Within that type of database, how would a query for people you may know work? Sure. So, uh, you know, we have a query language that we call Cypher. Uh, and Cypher should look somewhat similar to people who are familiar with SQL. But it's really optimized for graphs. And I like to call it ASCII art for graphs. So uh, you would say, you know, I have a user uh, and you can provide an alias. So say like you colon user. Um, and I am looking for the uh, people that they are friended or that they friended. So uh, essentially you have an arrow uh, between that user and another user object and friends with uh, as the relationship in the center. Uh, and then, you know, that, that's kind of the, the grounding part of the, the graph. So that's the pattern you're looking for in the graph. So you surround that, and this is obviously a little difficult to describe over, over voice, but basically you surround that in a match statement. So you're matching that pattern in the graph. Um, and then you have a where clause, which allows you to um, ground, uh, you know, where that is going to, where we're going to start that query from. So we're going to start it from me to find all of my friends, for instance, uh, and any sort of restrictions on the traversal. So maybe people that I've been, uh, you know, that I'm friends with from college, and it would, you know, it would restrict the traversal just to those relationships where um, the uh, my my college relationship is part uh, is a property of the the friends with relationship. Um, sorry, not so easy to describe over over audio, but. Um, uh, you can definitely see great examples of that on our website. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I agree that it's difficult to uh, to talk about it, it in a uh, high level of detail, but um, maybe you could, j- just to motivate it a little more, you could give uh, one more example, maybe like finding degrees of separation between two people uh, at whatever granularity you want to discuss it. Sure. So, I mean... Uh, oftentimes you do want to find friends uh, that are out to multiple degrees of separation. And this is a really simple thing that you can do uh, in Neo4j when you're describing the uh, relationship in the query. So let's say friends with, uh, you can actually specify an asterisk and then, you know, the number of levels deep. So you can say zero to five levels deep, and that will actually get you all of those friends within that numbers of degrees of separation. Uh, so that's, you know, one functionality of, of the graph that you can use in the Cypher query. You can also do things like find shortest path. So it will return to you. Um, let's say that, you know, I'm friends with John uh, and John is friends with Kate and Kate is friends with Sam. And I want to figure out what is the shortest path between me and Sam. Uh, Neo4j will find that path and return, you know, basically the, the nodes that connect me to Sam. Are there any other common functions for social networks that make a lot of sense against Neo4j that you'd like to discuss? Uh, I mean, we do support some uh, algorithms such as uh, like a page rank algorithm and that sort of thing, which is helpful um, in, in some use cases around social networks. But, 
You know, I think that, um, you know, one thing I would like to emphasize, I know we're giving social networks as an example here, but Neo4j is really useful across a wide variety of realms. A lot of times people tend to, to pigeonhole graph databases into the social network use case. Uh, and social networks, I agree, are, are important. People are developing social networks every day. They're, they're especially even important in enterprises. Um, but, uh, you know, we are very useful in things like routing of packages, for instance. One of the, the largest national carriers of, uh, of postal mail uh, actually uses Neo4j to, to decide how to route the package between the different postal centers and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, we... we uh, do focus on the graph database side. There are other technologies, which we call graph compute, that do focus more on kind of the analytics side. We're aiming to allow you to make sort of real-time decisions off of your data um, and keep that in a transactional model. Uh, if you're, you know, we do have many customers that use the data that's stored in Neo4j to run some analytics on it with Neo4j, but then other customers that take that data and, you know, put it to other graph compute technologies, like things like Spark and GraphX to run algorithms on, on their data. Sure. Um, and we'll get into some other examples uh, further on. Um, I guess let's talk a little bit more about the broad functionality of Neo4j. Does Neo4j allow for continuous querying? Uh, we don't have something that we call continuous querying. Uh, so basically, you know, if continuous querying is, is defined as as you update your data in the in the database, uh, having queries automatically performed and the result sets kind of automatically updated with those with the updates that you've made. Uh, we do have transaction event handlers that you can hook into in Neo4j and you can extend Neo4j so that anytime a commit happens, uh, you can examine that commit to say, hey, did it affect uh, the results of this query or did it affect certain you know, types of nodes uh, or these types of nodes where they modified or these types of relationships where they modified and then automatically you know, rerun a result. But it's not sort of built-in functionality in Neo4j. How does Neo4j affect the full stack architecture? Do you see customers typically augmenting their pre-existing architecture with Neo4j, or do you see them building their architecture from the ground up around Neo4j? We see both. Um, I mean, so there's, there are super innovative customers that uh, look at, prior to building their application, what is the best database to use for the type of data that they have and the problem that they're solving. Um, and they look at it and they say, hey, Neo4j is, is what I want to use for uh, building my entire application. And then we have other customers, uh, you know, perhaps in more conservative enterprise environments that look at Neo4j and say, well, we want to incorporate this in our overall enterprise architecture. Uh, and we're going to use this along with a set of other databases to solve our, our needs. Um, and more and more, you know, they start generally with one specific uh, use case, one specific application, but more and more we're seeing it then kind of permeate out through those enterprises that have adopted it for one application into a bunch of others. So in a polyglot system where there are multiple data stores, how are customers deciding which specific data stores they want to use a graph database for? 
So it's really where the uh, connections are, are the most important part of the data, where the relationships are the most important part of the data. That's what they're using to decide, you know, when to use Neo4j. Uh, and a simple way to do this is if your, you know, existing uh, architecture includes relational databases and you end up performing a lot of joins on your relationship database and your SQL queries get sort of longer and longer with, with lots of joins, um, you know, people start to look at Neo4j in those sort of circumstances because they're, they're generally not getting the performance uh, off of those queries that they need to make real-time decisions uh, when there's a lot of joins in this, you know, index lookups and that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's the general decision. I mean, there's, there's certainly other decisions that happen in the process beyond just performance. Um, you know, there are cases where, for instance, a, a document data store uh, is, is a much better way to store the data. You have huge, long documents, um, you know, that are maybe you even, even got those documents in a JSON format or something like that. Using that with Mongo makes sense. But then as you're trying to query the relationships between those documents and between that data, we found customers using us alongside Mongo uh, in scenarios like that and basically synchronizing the relationship database uh, data from Mongo to Neo4j to then run those relationship queries. How does the structure of Neo4j make joins more efficient? Sure. Um, so I mentioned earlier this concept called index-free adjacency. Uh, an index-free adjacency basically means that as you traverse the graph, uh, you're not looking up in new indexes. So I referred to uh, our cipher queries for matching nodes and then restricting and, and, and uh, kind of bounding the query on a where clause. Uh, basically, what we do is look to find out where we should start executing the query uh, and that oftentimes does uh, involve an index lookup on properties. Uh, so basically all the relationships as well as all the nodes can have properties on them that describe those relationships and nodes. And those properties can be indexed. So you do an index lookup to find kind of the starting point to execute the query. Uh, and that, you know, the performance of that index lookup is not going to be much different than a, than a single query on, on, uh, without any joins or anything like that on a relational database. Uh, but then where you get the real performance gains is as you traverse out the graph from there, uh, it is really just doing sort of pointer arithmetic. It's basically saying uh, our next node is is uh, 34 bytes away from this node. We're going to just hop 34 bytes and, and look at that node and hop another 34 bytes and look at that node uh, rather than doing index lookups for, for each of those operations as you would have in a, in a relational database. It's very interesting. Does a Neo4j user need to have an in-depth understanding of graph traversal algorithms? No, no. Uh, you know, the, we do aim for Neo4j to be usable, certainly by everyone that uses relational databases. Uh, but, you know, in most cases, it's usable by people who, who maybe even find relational databases too complex. Because of the way that we structure the queries, um, they're just a lot more readable. Um, you know, as you have that sort of ASCII art for graphs, uh, basically you're, you're describing a pattern that is human readable. You're describing a, you know, an object is linked to this other object via this relationship. And then you're saying, you know, what the uh, properties of those objects or relationships have to be. So, 
Uh, I, you know, I'd like to think it's much more readable and uh, more intuitive to create it. So the understanding of, you know, what actually happens underneath the covers is not necessary. It certainly is valuable at times when you're trying to like get super optimized performance, you're trying to get your queries down to, uh, you know, 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds or something like that. There's some value in understanding how the data is, is structured and stored. Um, but you know, most of our customers don't, don't need, uh, to understand the, the, the overall, you know, how a graph works in order to understand how to work with Neo4j. If a database user has built a relational data store and it's scaling out, they're building their application and they realize that their joins, they're doing all these joins that could be made more efficient. Uh, by a graph database, and they decide they're going to migrate to Neo4j. What is that migration process like, or what is that onboarding process like? Maybe it's maybe it's more of an augmentation of their architecture with Neo4j. But what do you typically see? We see a lot of people that are kind of in this scenario. So uh, some of our most popular content on our on the website and webinars and all is converting from relational databases to graph databases or augmenting, as you say. Um, the way that you, you know, do that is you, you first start and look at say, you know, what are, what are the, what are the data that's accessed most recently that is accessed in this relationship fashion in, you know, doing a bunch of joins. Um, and we allow you to take your data into Neo4j, uh, and import it really in the world's most basic data format of CSV files. Um, and we even just released in, in Neo4j 2.2 a much more performant way of uh, creating the graph from these CSV files sort of without the transactional overhead for your initial import, where you can do millions of rows, uh, sorry, millions of nodes and, and relationships in seconds. Um, but people are kind of looking at, you know, if they were to uh, take their data um, and uh, they currently have it in a bunch of tables. You can take each of those tables. Typically, um, you know, many of those tables are going to be your nouns. Are going to be, you know, this is a, a user, this is a uh, company that we work with, or this is a, a piece of real estate we have, uh, and those those become your nodes. Uh, and then you look at sort of the join tables uh, that are essentially doing foreign key mapping. Uh, and those foreign key mapping tables become your relationships. Uh, and so it's a pretty easy process to kind of look at your existing data and say, how would that map into a graph, you know, based off of natural language structure? And uh, then you, you know, kind of export the data out um, as CSV files and do sort of an initial proof of concept by loading that data into Neo4j um, and, you know, trying out some queries, trying out like, you know, those queries that took a lot of joins and were complex to read uh, and trying those out in Neo4j. So that's kind of how, how people start off. And then some people do end up doing sort of a full migration and other people end up doing, uh, you know, a synchronization process to take the relationship heavy query data uh, and, and put it into Neo4j uh, in addition to their relational database. How are people building systems with Hadoop and Neo4j? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the, uh, you know, Hadoop is really meant for massive data storage. You can, uh, and data storage and analytics, I should say. You can put tons of data there and you can run these MapReduce jobs on your data 
Um, but the MapReduce jobs are typically, you know, have performance characteristics of a batch job. Uh, so people are looking at that and saying, what are, what are the processes that we're running on Hadoop that are these batch jobs? And which of those would be valuable for our business or organization to have in a real-time way? Um, and then taking you know, a subset of that data out. In the other scenario that I was talking about um, you know, with regards to graph compute, at times you want to do analytics on the entire graph. You want to look at all of the, the vertices and uh, all of the nodes, and you want to do analytics um, uh, on all of that. And when you try to do like that sort of operation where you're touching every element of the graph, that's where graph compute comes in. So we have people that take Neo4j, their underlying data is stored in Neo4j, uh, and then they're using uh, things like Spark and Hadoop to take that data out of Neo4j, run some compute on it, and then take the results back into Neo4j. So maybe you're calculating weights on your various edges um, or things like that, that then you'll use to make real-time decisions off of. So some people, some people kind of use them in combination to, um, to run analytics on the entire graph, whereas Neo4j is, is optimized for when you're kind of starting from one point of the graph and your queries are touching a subset of the graph in order to really give you that real-time performance. And what about the Hadoop ecosystem tools that people are using with Neo4j, like Pig and Hive uh, or HBase? How are those being used? So, I mean, the Pig and, and Hive and that sort of thing is uh, often used on the analytics front. Um, so, you know, I don't see much overlap with Neo4j directly right. on those, that on makes those sense. tools. Okay. Um, that's more, you know, would be overlap with kind of what people would do with graph compute and use, you know, graph algorithms instead of like SQL queries running on, on Hadoop. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess what motivated that question is uh, I saw a slide share about Hadoop and graph databases uh, as applied to bioanalytics. Um, and mm-hmm. I'll put that in the show notes. It explored genetic sequence analysis, biological evolution, and cancer mutations. Um, so how are you seeing people use Neo4j for bioanalytics? We're actually seeing quite a bit of that um, in, in uh, our Graph Connect conference, which is uh, next month in October in San Francisco. We actually have folks from Monsanto speaking about how they used uh, Neo4j to kind of map the genes of food uh, and basically, you know, figure out what the path is um, of those genes. And I don't know all the all the details there, but. Uh, we're seeing it quite a bit in, in that sort of realm where you're trying to see what are the properties, um, you know, amongst the, these different gene mutations that are happening. Um, and we also, you know, see it a lot in healthcare as well, which you know, related to the bio field. Uh, you know, we have folks that are using it for healthcare for diagnosis, as well as uh, I met some folks from UCSF that are using it uh, to understand how, uh, they're doing analytics on CAT scans. And uh, so they're running algorithms on CAT scans and they want to understand when a diagnosis happens, how did that diagnosis uh, get computed? What were the various algorithms that were applied in the, in the chain of, of operations uh, in order to lead to that diagnosis? So healthcare and, and the bio field are, are both um, you know, areas that Neo4j is used in regularly. 
What are the cap trade-offs that Neo4j makes? Um, I would say basically we're uh, the biggest cap trade-off here is availability. And I, I should kind of um, preface that with a little bit here is that you know, Neo4j is available in two different editions. So we have our, our community edition, which is open source and free to use by everyone. Uh, and then we have our enterprise edition, which is also open source, uh, but is uh, available for enterprise licensing. Um, and the uh, enterprise version does provide um, a cluster approach to running your graph database. It's a cluster for the purpose of high availability. Uh, so what we do there is uh, we have a single master uh, and then we have slaves. And uh, if the, the master goes down, then there's a uh, master re-election process amongst those slaves to figure out who will be the, the next master. Um, and, you know, part of that is that uh, if we do have... Um, if we do end up not having a majority of the nodes available, uh, then you know we we will trade off availability in that scenario. Versus, uh, we, we you know, basically we don't want to make any of your your data corrupt. We don't want to have the scenario where uh, you have uh, in a network partition scenario where you have two instances of the cluster that are running and accepting uh, right transactions. We never we never allow for that. Um, and so in that way, we, we trade off availability to prevent, uh, prevent that from happening. Uh, we really, you know, like I said earlier on the asset compliance set, when you're running on a single node is this is actually really important for us. So, you know, some folks are, are saying nowadays that base is good enough. Uh, we don't find base to be good enough in our, you know, for our customers that are in the finance industry or oil and gas or healthcare, like, you know, they want their, their database to be available and they want to ensure that their transactions are, are written. Um, and so that's probably the trade-off that we make in, in cap. That's interesting. Um, so, when for your leader election process in the enterprise edition of Neo4j, did you build your own leader election distributed coordination system, or do you use something like Zookeeper? Uh, we built our own. Um, we we uh, you know this is actually a big focus of our business is uh, making sure that the High availability uh, is highly available, and making sure that the data is consistent. So uh, that's why our customers rely upon us, as opposed to you know some some other graph databases out there that are that are built on top of other systems which don't have those properties. What is it about your distributed coordination system that has an advantage over? Using something like Zookeeper, I, I don't know. I'm just very, I'm very curious about this uh, about this topic. Sure, I'm actually not that familiar with <laughs> Zookeeper, um, so that that's going to be a hard answer for me to give. Sure, you okay. There. Better better question. Maybe um, what are the advantages you get from building your own distributed coordination system? I mean, I think it, it really comes down to having control over over how everything works, right? Like. Um, you know, there's there's always advantages in taking, um, you know, using other people's software uh, in the open source world to, um, you know, 
make your development time faster. Uh, and so we've chosen to do that in some areas. You know, we've chosen to build on top of Java, for instance, because um, you know of the the benefits of the compiler and because of uh, the work that's being done, you know, in memory optimization and cross-platform support and things along those lines. Uh, but in the case of, you know, architecting our, our HA mechanism, you know, we've chosen uh, after uh, obviously evaluating the, the technology out there, we've chosen to uh, write our own. Do you know if it's a Paxos-like system or a Raft system? Uh, it's, it's more of the Paxos realm. So as I've done interviews this week, there seems to be an evolution in what people think of as a database. How do you define the term database today? I think database is defined today as, as it always was, but sort of the common, uh, the common interpretation has returned back to its roots more. So what I mean by that is if you asked someone, um, you know, 15 years ago, uh, you ask someone, um, you know, spin up a database for me. It was automatically assumed that that was a relational database and probably assumed that it was, you know, Oracle or MySQL uh, or maybe DB2 or, or things like that. But, you know, database was sort of synonymous with a relational database and synonymous with uh, a database that handled queries in, in SQL 92. Um, and, you know, today, I think that we've returned more to the roots of the term and we've re returned more to the idea that a database just means something where you can store, query and, and access your data from applications um, and exactly how that data is structured or what the properties of storing that data or, or transactions or no transactions and all of that are are really based off of what database you choose to use rather than. Uh, kind of the predetermined destiny that existed in that term 15 years ago. So um, I actually like where it's gone because, you know, people actually, uh, as computer scientists, are looking at uh, the different options out there uh, and choosing amongst a lot of different options rather than sort of having this predetermined uh, destiny that existed, you know, in, say, corporate IT culture back 15 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of a movement away from one size fits all. Um, Neo4j is written in Java. I've had some conversations with different database creators over the past week, and there's an interesting set of trade-offs when you decide to write a database in a garbage-collected language versus a non-garbage-collected language. Maybe you could talk some about the development of Neo4j in Java uh, and if you have any insights on the garbage collection uh, uh, trade-offs, uh, that would be an interesting point to touch on. I mean, I think garbage collection is one of those things in Java that you know uh, the developers of Java itself have improved a lot over the years. Have have written different garbage collectors over the years that have dramatically. Uh, improved how garbage collection works and eliminating or lessening pauses and, and that sort of thing. Uh, with Neo4j, we've kind of, you know, this is one of those areas where we have decided to kind of take advantage of and build upon uh, what other folks have written. So, you know, Java allows our development team to be productive. It allows the 
uh, you know, enterprises that adopt Neo4j to use a technology that they're familiar with, that they have staff that, you know, can use, uh, use Java already. And, you know, it's just sort of decades of experience that went into the programming language, including things like memory management and cross-platform support and such. Uh, you know, as we as we move forward, we're, we're definitely looking at ways uh, that we can optimize. And there are some cases where, you know, we're going to be doing things outside of, of the way that Java traditionally does it in areas like memory management um, to to improve um you know, improve our caching strategies and things like that. But we started off, you know, by using Java with the, you know, there was a good model already in place there. And we're just working on iterating in that and making it better and better over time. Could you touch on any of those uh, unusual things you're doing that are outside the realm of uh, typical Java applications? It's things along the lines of of uh, deciding where you know we store our data and caches. So you know, moving the caches uh, off the heap, for instance. You know, in in the past, the cache has just been on the Java heap, and um, and you know, thus has the management that's built into Java for for that memory. Um, and for a variety of reasons, and I, you know, I don't know all the details here, but we've chosen to uh, move that cache off of heap to get better performance in our caching. Could you talk more about the transaction model of a uh, Neo4j insert or uh, or query? Um, just uh, how what degrees of atomicity do you get? Yeah, it's it's fully atomic. So we, um, you know, like I said earlier, we do uh, go for acid compliance. That's one of our, our key um, you know tenants of, of building our database, and so. Uh, we want to make sure that your transactions are atomic and they are, um, you know, durable in, in their process as well. So uh, when you do an, an insert to Neo4j, um, we or you do an update in Neo4j, uh, you can group all of your, your statements together uh, in the Cypher query language within a single transaction. Uh, and then that transaction is uh, when it's when it's committed is written to our write ahead log, uh, and that write ahead log is uh, in a in a lazy fashion then written to to the backend store. Um, so we don't write you know we don't write immediately to the the uh, the backend store, um, but we do write to this write ahead log, which gives us the ability that when uh, you know, if the database crashes during during that process, that we're guaranteeing that asset compliance because we can reapply the operations from from the transaction log. Can Neo4j ever read stale data? Uh, the if you are accessing the data off of the same node uh, that it was written to in a clustered environment, no. Uh, and so our best practice basically is um, when you when you create a cluster. Um, you can uh, be sticky to a particular node for doing your write operations. And that way that once your, your transaction has succeeded, uh, you know that you don't have uh, any sort of, of stale data when you do further reads from that node. Um, 
And you know, this this uh, is the structure of a lot of applications uh, that use Neo4j to make sure that a client that performs some interaction never gets back data that uh, is different than than what they had just written to. Uh, so you know, in that way, uh, as long as people follow those best practices, you're you're never going to to read stale data. Uh, we do uh, when you when data does get written to the master. Uh, and sent out to the other nodes, it is uh, in an optimistic fashion. So the transaction completes uh, when at least the master and a configurable number of other nodes have that data written to disk. Um, but it is an optimistic uh, operation so that uh, that kind of session affinity or stickiness of your clients is important. What is the open source community of Neo4j like? How does uh, How does development occur? Are there any interesting nuances to the behaviors within the community? I wouldn't say nuances. I think that, you know, we uh, started off as uh, an open source project and uh, Neo4j started off in 1999. Um, it's, it's been a number of years that it's been in development uh, and it wasn't really commercialized uh, until uh, just a handful of years ago. So, um, you know, it's it has taken advantage of and been an active contributor to the open source community over the years. Uh, nowadays, you know, all the code is hosted on GitHub. Uh, anyone can read and, and do um, uh, do pull requests to Neo4j. Um, and you know, I would still say, you know, we do have a um, you know a very active company that is building this uh, technology as well. Um, you know, because we do have our enterprise sales, so we have you know hundred person company, including uh, dozens of software engineers who are uh, contributing to this as well. So you know, I'd say at this point, probably the the vast majority of the contributors to the core database, um, you know, our contributions to the core database are written by. Uh, Neo4j employees, but there's a huge ecosystem uh, around Neo4j as open source software uh, that has developed since it did start off uh, in its roots as compli- you know, entirely open source and entirely free. Um, and you know, that community is around things like uh, visualization tools or things like um, uh, drivers for accessing Neo4j from a variety of programming languages. Uh, Neo4j, you know, has this name implied into it, 4j, uh, which is something we always kind of joke about internally, uh, and that's just its roots as being, you know, for for Java. But you know, nowadays we have people writing code in, uh, you know, PHP, Python, Ruby. Uh, you know, C Sharp, et cetera, all sorts of different programming languages. Uh, and we rely upon the community to, to build those drivers and support the community uh, who are using those drivers to access Neo4j. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, of open source uh, goodness that we, we get out of the community, and we greatly appreciate that. And we you know, actively encourage participation on, on GitHub and Stack Overflow and um, we even just launched a new Slack channel to bring the community together and, and things like that. How does Slack impact the relationship that the company has with a customer? Uh, I think, you know, right now we, we've definitely largely used it as a, a community tool. Um, I think we launched it like three weeks ago or so. We have about a thousand people on Slack. Uh, you know, that's just a small portion of our overall community. 
but we, you know, we've used it largely as a communi- you know, community communication tool um, where, especially around things like those drivers, authors, they can talk amongst each other, the, you know, people in the community can ask them questions. I think the biggest thing with, with Slack and some of these other tools is it really kind of personifies uh, the people who are doing this development uh, of either the open source side or, um, you know, either open source and, and free software development or the people that are working on our enterprise product, people having a real name behind it and feeling like they're interacting with the company in real time as they are. Um, and that, you know, that just has a lot of benefits to, to build trust and, and build the relationships uh, between individuals. So, uh, you know, I've seen communication on there that's about Neo4j, but, you know, also people will just talk about random topics. And I think we're seeing, you know, somewhere around, uh, you know, 50% of the communication that's on our Slack channel as being direct messages between users as opposed to things that are happening in channels. So it's just giving a, a better way for them to connect uh, that is more instantaneous than, you know, previous channels that, that people would use, whether it be, you know, GitHub issues or Twitter or things like that. It's a fascinating development. Um, could you talk more about the origin story of Neo4j? Yeah, so Neo4j really started off, uh, I was saying, 1999. It was um, a, the group of founders were developing software at, uh, for enterprise CMS in Sweden, um, and they ran into some challenges on performance, as a lot of people do. They were using a relational database. Uh, they had about 20 uh, software engineers working on this project, uh, and they found that 10 of their software engineers were working on the underlying database. Um, and this was a CMS uh, largely to help photographers uh, classify and group their, their photographs, um, and it just seemed like a natural graft problem to the founders and they were surprised that that they didn't see more out there uh you know in terms of graph technology so you know standard do something do the property graph model on a on a napkin scenario um and they started building it for this company and then uh eventually they they kind of spun out and started working on it as uh a uh, open source project with kind of the first official release happening in 2007, uh, you know, and then eventually they moved from Sweden to the Valley uh, and, uh, you know, got got VC funding and such and, and now, you know, have a full-fledged enterprise business based on this. Why did it take eight years to get to an initial release? I, you know, I think it was mostly the the idea that they were uh, working on this in just a, a percent of their time. They were they were focused on the the uh, business problem that the uh, company that they were working for had and, and solving that business problem uh, as opposed to to making it a general purpose uh, graph database for the whole world to use. But uh, they still you know stuck towards that that path eventually. Um, and you know, developing a database isn't exactly easy. You know. Um, there, there are folks that have said that, you know, if they had known that it would take this long to, to develop a database, uh, it might not have been a path that they would have gone down. But, um, and that's, you know, that's because it's just complex software to write, uh, especially when you're trying to get the, the guarantees and all that we're looking for with asset compliance and such. So it takes a lot of time. And, um, but, you know, now we have, um, 
you know, well over a hundred enterprise customers. Um, and we have tens of thousands of, of users around the world using our database. So uh, it's, it's been a path that's been worthwhile. What are the most important features that are being worked on in Neo4j that we haven't discussed yet? Really, a lot of our focus uh, is around performance optimization. Um, and so there are a couple different areas. Um, one is, is doing performance optimization of the underlying database. Uh, and then the second uh, is, uh, you know, performance optimization of, of the queries themselves. So, you know, Neo4j originally started off as sort of a, a Java embedded traversal framework. Um, so, you know, basically, you, Neo4j handled all the transactions and handled the underlying data store, uh, but you sort of manually wrote in Java code how you would traverse the graph to answer the problems that you have. Um, and then, you know, we decided that we wanted to make it a lot easier for people to query uh, their data. So we created this Cypher query language. Uh, and the Cypher query language, um, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into making that Cypher query language performant. And so we just released a, a new uh, cost optimizer on, on the query uh, on, and analyzing the Cypher queries. Uh, and we're continuing, we have a whole team devoted to improving the performance there. And then the other area on performance uh, that we're looking at is uh, remoting APIs. So currently we have uh, the Cypher language gets sent over HTTP uh, to, to execute on Neo4j's servers um, or on the Neo4j servers that are, that are running in your enterprise. And um, the HTTP has a lot of overhead. Right. No matter how much you, you try to eliminate that overhead, uh, just HTTP by its very nature, at least 1.1, has, has a significant amount of overhead. Um, so we are uh, creating a, a binary remoting protocol um, that uh, eliminates some of that uh, overhead. And uh, with the new binary remoting protocol, um, you know, we have a lot of work that we're doing around the drivers and such as well. And, and some of it is, you know, we're writing some of the core underlying um, low-level drivers in, in various languages, but uh, we're getting the community, uh, you know, really spun up around uh, adapting the other higher-level drivers that they've already written in the community to uh, use this remoting API so that people can have, have faster query times in Cypher. Ryan Boyd, thank you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a pleasure talking to you about Neo4j. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you too, Jeff. Thanks for uh, having me.